Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. It's good to see everybody here on this fine, warm, toasty evening. At least it's warm and toasty in here, and uh, that's good enough. We'll worry about the rest of it here in a few minutes. Uh, man, it's nice to, uh, to be back in the pulpit this evening, preaching once again from the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, our text this, uh, oh, there it is, good. All right, I, this is inexplicable. I don't even know what's happening, y'all. Okay, so uh, I looked at the scripture reading a minute ago, which was last week's, meaning that Dropbox didn't update for some reason, which is not our guy's fault up there, okay? Not their fault. But I was like, well, all this work I've done on this uh, presentation, it just is not going to be visible to anybody. The devil's trying to get me mad. I'm not going to get mad. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what I'm saying to myself at that point in time. And now it's there. I don't understand. I looked in Dropbox and it was just all blank. So good, good, good. Um, what I was going to say is either I'm pretending this is the case to make you all think I'm better than I am or... There usually would be a lot of work up there that I did in preparation, and y'all can decide based on my general character, which is the case. But now you don't have to decide because there's the work. All right, 1 Corinthians 14, review and prep. All right, let's think about this passage. First of all, let's say this. Sunday is the Lord's Day of Lord's Days. Now, I say that because the Bible says that Sunday is the Lord's Day. At least by implication, it says Sunday is the Lord's Day. Now, the Bible also says that every day is holy. Every day is the Lord's day. He owns them all. And so Sunday, we might say, is the Lord's day of Lord's days. Even though we are called to be God's people seven days a week, 365 and one quarter days a year. Yes, on leap year two, we are to be God's people. That's always true and righteous and faithful to him every single day of our lives. But there are certain things that God calls us to assemble together to do on the first day of the week. And that's why we especially call Sunday the Lord's Day, even though every day is His. And the Lord has a purpose for this day. Uh, he has a purpose that we would assemble as His people to worship Him as instructed by His Word. And so I want you to understand that this is the case and that this is what 1 Corinthians 14 is about. It's about what we do when we come together on Sunday and why. Now, there are many factors that are important to a comprehensive treatment of what we ought to be doing in worship on Sunday that 1 Corinthians 14 does not address. It is not a step-by-step -step law code as to what we ought to be doing on Sunday. That's not what this chapter is about. This is an occasional letter from the Apostle Paul. And we are in no sense detracting from its inspiration. It is a part of the canon of Scripture. But what the book is is actually a letter that Paul wrote to a certain group of people at a certain place in time to address specific issues with which they were dealing. And one of the things they were dealing with was a lack of unity and chaos and arrogance and fighting for position in their public assemblies on Sunday because of the problems that we've talked about among them in the previous week. And so if you'll remember what we talked about last Sunday night about chapters 11, 12, and 13, what Paul talks about, about the way that they were 
mistaking the value of the spiritual, miraculous spiritual gifts they'd been given uh, from the Holy Spirit, and they were using them to create a pecking order of who was the best and greatest and most important in the church. Well, if that's their theology, if that's their doctrine, if that's their misunderstanding, well, what you think, that uh, informs what you say and as well what you do. And, and so whatever you think, that's how you're going to behave. And so with, with this division that they had because of their arrogance and because of the way they wanted to create a pecking order, some are more talented than others and they're more useful than others and all that sort of thing, naturally there were going to be some problems in their Sunday assemblies, right? And that's why 1 Corinthians 14 is here. It doesn't talk about worship to God primarily. That's something that is implied in the background. What 1 Corinthians 14 is going to talk about is what we might call our horizontal relationship in worship. So we have a vertical responsibility to God when we come together to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's a subject for another lesson. We also have a, a what we might call horizontal responsibility to each other to build each other up in the faith. We think about Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, often passages along with John uh, chapter 4, 23 and 24 in context there, where we might put together a sermon on how we ought to come to worship God and focus on Him. Remember, we ultimately worship for an audience of one. But that one is not concerned with his own needs because he isn't worshiped with men's hands as if he needed anything. Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, seeing that he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. We don't come here together to boost God's ego as if the week has been hard on him <laughs> and he needs to hear our voices in song in order to lift up his heart and encourage him. If that's the way you think about God, you don't understand his perfection. He calls us to worship him because it is our place, it is our lot, it's the proper thing to do. As a result, it is a blessing to us to worship God. We worship God because it is good for us to worship God. That's the reason he has commanded it. He does not need it. He wants it because he thinks unselfishly in the best interests of his children. And so naturally then, the way that the Spirit of God is going to order our worship services is going to be in a way that is going to enable us to encourage and build each other up so that we will, will be drawn closer to God, deeper in our affections to God. And that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is going to be about. All right, so there are two terms that you need to, to, we need to be on the same page about as far as definitions go as we read through this chapter together. One is tongues. And what tongues mean in 1 Corinthians 14 is the miraculous ability to speak God's Word in human languages without studying those languages. Amen. Now, I'm going to say this bluntly and boldly and not go another second in it. There is debate about that in Christendom today, and I understand that, and I'm very well aware of it, and I'm keenly aware of the arguments that folks use in opposition to the definition I've given you tonight. And if you need me to talk you through that sometime, I will. And undoubtedly, Lord willing, sometime I'll preach on it. But what I'm telling you is if you study the word carefully, you will see that the only tongues of speaking that was being done in the ancient church was the speaking of human languages to human beings, languages that were understandable by human beings. But the speakers of those languages had never been taught or studied those languages. And so the gift of tongues was a miraculous ability that was designed to enable ancient Christians to communicate the gospel to people whose language they could not speak. And that was its purpose, right? The second term is prophecy. 
Prophecy, of course, uh, can mean multiple things depending upon the context that we're speaking in. But what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 is revelation from God. That is knowledge or insights or wisdom that God gives to a person supernaturally and that they are called by God to speak or to write down, to communicate. That's what we're talking about when we use the term prophecy, all right? So with that in mind, let's kick into the text of 1 Corinthians 14 and read it together. And I'm going to do this in proper Puritan fashion, even though we're not Puritans, but I'm going to preach through this in what is called the running commentary method. So you ready? You got 1 Corinthians 14 in front of you? If you don't, you have it on the screen. Pursue love. Remember, Paul didn't write this in chapters. We have 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians that Paul knew nothing about. He just wrote a letter, and so the last words of 1 Corinthians 13, so now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The very next words there without a chapter division in the original letter are pursue love. Pursue love. That's what you pursue. You earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. You see, these words are already coming up. Four. Now you see to the right of your screen the word limitations. Limitations. Keep that word in mind as we read the next paragraph or two. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now it's misunderstanding this passage in a similar fashion to the way people misunderstand the first verse of the previous chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. I refer you to last week's sermon, which is online if you missed that. It is misunderstanding why Paul says this that leads some of our friends in Christendom and Pentecostal and Charismatic churches to think that speaking in tongues is speaking in angelic tongues or uh, speaking in ecstatic language that only God can understand. And that's not true. The issue is people that had the gift of speaking in tongues could do it. Apparently, anytime they wanted to, at least when the Spirit was upon them, empowering them to do it. But if they spoke in French, not that there was really a French language at this period of time, that would develop, well, years later. But let's just use the illustration. If they spoke in French, but nobody in the auditorium knew how to understand French, it's not that they're not speaking French, it's that nobody understands it but God. That's Paul's saying. So there is a limitation of usefulness on the gift of speaking in tongues if you're not around people that need to hear the gospel in that tongue. Does that make sense? That's why Paul says what he says. On the other hand, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So there's a limitation that Paul is concerned with. He is not now doing what he's criticized uh, the folks in Corinth from doing, and that is creating a pecking order of who's most important in the church. But see, the folks in Corinth had apparently decided that speaking in tongues was the most important gift. Similar to our Pentecostal friends today who have chosen glossolalia, which is actually a pagan practice that they then uh, insert eisegetically into the text in order to explain these texts. They also have decided that the number one sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the ability to speak in tongues. And so they don't, they don't agree that anyone has been baptized in the Holy Spirit unless that has been demonstrated through their speaking of nonsense. I'm sorry I'm not being mean. I'm just telling you what is the truth. All right? Now, the, the folks in Corinth were so impressed with the ability to speak these languages that, that they had, had decided this was the greatest gift. And Paul is going to tell them they're wrong. 
Now, he's not going to elevate folks that had the gift of prophecy above everyone else and create a sinful pecking order in the church, but he is going to tell the church why prophecy is more important than tongues, right? Prophecy is more important than tongues because the one who prophesies has actual knowledge from God that he can then communicate or she can then communicate to other people in order to teach them some aspect of the truth that they may not have understood or in order to, to more perfectly explain some aspect of the truth that they'd not fully understood. So the whole point of the ministry of the word in a congregational setting is to speak something that the hearers can understand that is true word from God so that they can apply it to their thought process that it will affect the way that they speak and act in the rest of their lives. That's the purpose. I am up here for the purpose of communicating the word of God in what I hope will be an understandable way that will change your lives, brothers and sisters. That's the point of the ministry of the word in our assemblies. And that's why in the ancient world, prophecy was more important than tongues. By the way, it's still more important than tongues today. What I'm doing right now is prophesying. Not because I have a supernatural gift, but because I'm taking revelation that came supernaturally from God, and I'm interpreting it and preaching and teaching it to you for your encouragement and upbuilding. That's the role of prophecy, and it still functions in the church today, even though there are no longer any living prophets among us. The canon is closed. 66 books of the Bible, that is the completed Word of God. If there's still prophets in the world today, then we need to be adding books to the Bible. There are no prophets in the world today. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. In other words, he's having an interesting experience with the Spirit over him, enabling him to speak in a language. It's pretty strange. Can you imagine just suddenly the ability to speak in a language that you've never been taught before and just being under the power of the Holy Spirit? Of course they found that fascinating. Anybody find that fascinating? Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. They didn't all, see? But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets because, again, the point is an understandable communication. Amen. That's the point. So that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? The implication here is that the glossolalia that our Pentecostal, our Pentecostal friends practice is of no value whatsoever to God. And it's 100% true. It offers no value to anyone in any way that will change their life. And therefore, it is not worthy to be present in an assembly of Christians together. And I say to any of my Pentecostal or charismatic friends that may be listening to this sermon online, or if any of you have that background in the auditorium, I love you. And I love your love for Jesus. And I'm not criticizing that. But I am going to plainly say that if you will study the context of 1 Corinthians 14 very well, you will realize that many of the practices that our Pentecostal friends practice are unscriptural and they are not productive or helpful to the cause of Christ in any way. And in fact, in certain situations, they provide people with a false sense of spirituality that very well may cripple them spiritually because they believe that the favor of God is among them because they think that they are ecstatic in the spirit and being led by powers they cannot control when in reality this is a figment of their imagination and nothing positive happening for the development of their spirits and their relationship with Christ. Now there it is just about as plainly as I can say it. So Paul says in verse 7, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not, give in, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? 
And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? Are we speaking clear, understandable language here? I, and again, I'm, I'm just going to move on. For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. You see again what Paul understands these tongues are? There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, just for a moment here, let's pause and let's think about the implications of this for us today. Now, in last week's sermon, if, if, if you hadn't heard it before, we, we talked about the fact that these miraculous supernatural gifts were given by the, by the Holy Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands to certain members of the ancient church to enable them to do the work of Jesus in establishing the church, establishing the kingdom, and ultimately in, in completing the canon of Scripture, completing the revelation of the New Testament, and confirming it with the signs and wonders that they were able to accomplish. But prophecy, Daniel 9 for one, as various other places in Scripture, prophecy had already foretold that the accomplishment of the Christian mission in the first century would, would end with the sealing up of prophecy, that it would be done, sealed up, closed, and over. And so the first century exercising these gifts, they were able to accomplish that. And now from the end of the first century until today, we've had the completed canon of Scripture, 66 books. Every bit of knowledge that was revealed in part to the various prophets in the ancient church, all of it that God wished to be preserved for all of time until judgment day is in this book. We do not despise prophecies. We simply despise false prophets. And the Bible is the only source of actual prophecy that we have extant in the world around us today. And so what do we do with our so-called natural gifts? Because all of us have been given gifts and talents and opportunities to use them. And they may not function in exactly the same way as we read about these miraculous gifts in the ancient church. But they function based on the same principles. And so if you look at what I've highlighted in yellow, especially there on the screen. Brothers and sisters, our responsibility is virtually the same as it was in the ancient world. With whatever gifts we may be equipped today in 2023, God wants us to be eager. He wants us to strive to excel in building up the church. Our number one job when we come together on the Lord's day is to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's number one. We worship for an audience of one, ultimately. But secondly, and really, it's not a secondary thing. It's simply something that flows from the first thing. That being the case, every Sunday, every one of us needs to get in the car and head toward the assembly with the purposed intent to make one of our brothers and sisters in Christ's life better. To encourage them in a way that will make them stronger. To impart some word of knowledge or wisdom that will help them to understand God better. That's our purpose. 
It's not just to hit our spiritual time clock, so to speak, and legalistically say that somehow we've done what God requires of us and we can go back to being secularists for the next six days. Man, that's not the aim of Scripture at all. We're coming here for each other's sake. And anytime you hear somebody say, well, I don't like coming to church. I can go out and worship God on the lake on Sunday and I get more out of that. Sure you do, you Satan worshiper, you. Now you let that sink in for a minute. Because there's no worship of God that leads you to neglect his people that need you to go out on the lake and worship selfishly. That's satanic. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. In other words, it needs to make sense. I need to understand it. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, that is in an unintelligible way, how can anyone in the position of outsider say amen? I had uh, some folks come to me at a previous church, not Laverne, <laughs> but at a previous church, because y'all know if I'm not preaching, I'm going to say amen a time or two. All right, it's going to happen. We might get a that's right somewhere because it gets a little boring to say amen four times in a row. So I'll say amen. There you go, brother. See, that's the point. If somebody really says something, I'm going to say preach it. Y'all know that too. But you got to earn that one. All right, I don't say that unless it's a really good point. All right, but I, I was at a previous church, and this was a non-amening church when I got there. It wasn't when I left, but when I got there, it was a non-amening church. And first couple of Sundays there, I had somebody come to me and say, now, if you keep saying amen during the worship... One of these folks over here, and someone's name was said, which I won't share for the sake of protecting the guilty. But one of these folks over here said, that you're, that you're just going to you're going to end up face to face with this person telling you you ought to keep your mouth shut. And I just quoted 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16. Take it up with Jesus. <laughs> Take it up with him. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Thank you. All right, continuing then. Uh, how is anyone uh, in the position of an outsider to say amen to your uh, thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving things well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank, my, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church. Now, there is question today. Lord willing, in 2024, I'll explore this a little more deeply than I have time to do tonight. But there are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in churches of Christ, who are very strongly arguing against the idea that there is such a thing as a regulated worship service in New Testament Christianity. Now, part of this is because of partially true but unhelpful definitions of words like church. When we would find the word church and we say it means the called out of the world because I can be called out of the world anywhere. In fact, I am the church called out of the world anywhere. But the practical meaning of the word, what Koine Greek-speaking folks in the ancient world heard when they heard the word ekklesia was not this esoteric idea of being called out of the world in this spiritual sort of state. But what they heard was assembly. People called out into assembly. And so the Sunday assembly is precisely what Paul is talking about here. It is a real biblical thing that is regulated by Scripture. In other words, when we come together on Sunday, we need to worship according to the teachings of the Bible. We need to do it the way that God has taught us to do it. And so in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Remember what he said in chapter 13? 
When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. You see, the point of these miraculous gifts was not to celebrate people's giftedness. The point of the gifts was to teach the word of Almighty God. That was the point. And that's why Paul was urging them to grow up. He says, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Be utterly uneducated and innocent with regard to evil as much as is human possible, is, is, is humanly possible. But in your thinking, be mature. Now, we could go on about Paul's primary audience and who he thinks he's speaking to. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, the whole church is listening to this letter being read when they come together on Lord's Day Sunday to hear the word of the chosen apostle to the Gentiles. The church in Corinth is hearing these words as if they are the authority of God because they are, because Paul is writing these things under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. And so he's teaching man, woman, and child to seek maturity. And I just felt while I was studying and preparing, I need to say that brothers and sisters, you've heard me say it before, but this mindset that is so prevalent in our culture that idolizes youth so much that many of us in our world today tell children, oh, don't you grow up too fast. Now you just be a kid. You just enjoy this period of time. Life's going to get hard. Life's going to get rough when you grow up. So, so you just don't rush into maturity. No, you drag this childhood thing out. That is unbiblical. Unbiblical. If you've got a three-year-old who's willing to think like a five-year-old, that's a good three-year-old. If you've got a five-year-old who's as mature as a ten-year-old, that's a good thing. You've got a fifteen-year-old that acts like a grown man, grown woman. Good. Why is that wrong? Why would we not want our children to grow up? Why would we not want that? Why would we not want them to be mature? Why would we not want them to take on responsibility? I want my kids to be God's kids. I want them to grow up to be men as they've done. I praise God for that. I want my grandchildren to do the same thing. As soon as they're willing to grow up and act with maturity and responsibility, that's when they need to do it. If it's age four or it's age 40, brothers and sisters, we've got to get around to it at some point. Amen? In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Notice this. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. What? If you define tongue speaking the way many of our friends do today, that makes no sense whatsoever. Continue to listen. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak tongues and an outside speak in tongues and an outsider unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Now that didn't happen on Pentecost. We're accused of being drunk. But the folks that were actually listening when Peter and the rest of the apostles were preaching there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and they received, they'd received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. You, you read the description of all the different uh, Arabs and Elamites and those from Mesopotamia, proselytes from Rome, etc. The whole list of folks, they all said, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the mighty works of God, right? Nobody said they're crazy because they were languages that people needed to hear. But what was happening in Corinth is folks were speaking Swahili, but there were no Swahili speakers there. And so if an unbeliever came in and heard the gibberish, because that's what it would sound like to them, that many folks here, when they go into a Pentecostal church today, what are they going to say? Folks, are out of your minds. And I don't know why more people don't do that when they go into a Pentecostal church today. And again, forgive me, I'm not trying to be mean. But if all prophesy, 
That is, speak the truth of the Word of God. If all teach intelligible wisdom from God, doctrine from God, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Brothers and sisters, the power has always been in the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17, so then faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God or the word of Christ. That's where the power for conversion is. No one will come to Christ apart from the powerful and true preaching of the Bible. It is God's chosen means of creating faith. And no one will come to faith in Jesus apart from the Bible. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn. Teaching the church a hymn so that we could sing and worship to God. A lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Here's the purpose. That all things be done for building up. As we review what we do as a church when we come together to worship, this needs to be our metric. When we think about what we do in our worship, we need to be asking ourselves this question all the time. What are we doing when we come together on the Lord's Day to worship God? Is this for building up? 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 And if it fails to pass the test of building us up in our relationship with Christ, it needs to go. Because this is the central purpose for the horizontal act of worshiping God together in a congregation. So here are some rules. Ways to order the worship service. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn, let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God, a passage which Pentecostals disobey every single Sunday. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. In other words, today, just making a jump to apply this principle today, we can have multiple speakers in the church if we would like to. doesn't have to just be one. I'm fine for it to be. But if we want to have three sermons in a row on Sunday, there's nothing wrong with that. If your minds can absorb what your rear ends can handle, then, hey, we can go all day long and there would be nothing wrong with that, right? The point is, though, one at a time so that people can listen to the message. It's not how many speakers we have. It's how the service is organized so that there's not a chaotic mass of confusion going on so that there's a clear word being shared that people can hear and like the Bereans of Acts 17 can search the word of God to see whether these things are so. That's the way things are supposed to be done in church. The spirits, notice verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. And so the prophecy never took over someone and, and made them lose their mind to where that they could not anymore control their behavior and run around like animals in the church building, yipping and barking on and, and all of these various things that often happen when folks misunderstand the truth on these subjects. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, more controversy. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. It doesn't say women are to be silent anywhere else. It says women are to keep silent in the assemblies of the church, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Are you ashamed of that teaching? Just ask you that question. Are you ashamed of it? And if so, why? I know some are ashamed of it. 
I'm just asking you to ask yourself why. And consider if it's, if it's in Scripture, it's in here for a God-given reason. And he does not owe you answers. You say, why did God order things that way in creation? Why in society did God order things that way? Why in the church did he order things that way? I don't know. And you don't have to like it. How about that? But you do have to obey it. It's the word of God. Or was it from you? Remember God's questions to Job? This section is reminiscent of that. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it's reached? No. Paul says if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a commandment of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Summary and application. The purpose of our assemblies is, vertically, to worship God together as directed by his word. And there are other texts that teach us about that. Our purpose in 1 Corinthians 14 is the horizontal, the human-to-human -human aspect of our assemblies. And our purpose is to teach and encourage each other in the faith through the ministry of the prophetic word, hymns, prayers, and the Lord's Supper. And there are three characteristics of Christian assemblies that we can glean from 1 Corinthians 14. Number one is the principle of edification. And I realize that's a theological word that we may not use Monday through Saturday very often, but it just literally means building up. If you think that a building is also an edifice, and an edifice is also a building, and if you can remember that root word, then you can oftentimes tell the meaning of a word that you may not be used to in a text. That's some good old English teacher skills. Those of you English majors will hopefully appreciate that. Right? So it means building up in true knowledge and love and loyalty to God in Christ. Number one of our purpose with each other in the worship assembly. Two is joint participation. In other words, the principle of mutual edification. One of the reasons why, I believe, the apostles led the ancient church to only sing a cappella and no instruments were brought into the worship services for a thousand years of the church, practically speaking, is because when you elevate certain worshipers to an elite status as performers, it changes the dynamic. And it creates a situation in which all the church is not actually functioning as one body as much as they possibly can. Now, if there's going to be order, there's got to be a leader, and that's the fact. But doing things in the primitive, ancient way by having minimal leadership so that the worship is actually being done by the congregation is a biblical thing, and it is consistent with the principles of 1 Corinthians 14. I'll talk more about that next year, Lord willing. Finally, decency and order. As a reflection of the mind of Christ and as means of eliminating all limitations on communicating the gospel, we are called to be very careful to make sure that what we do when we come together as a church on Sundays or any other time is decent, most importantly in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of each other, and to the extent possible the community also, and that it is orderly so that the purposes of Christian worship can be accomplished. That's the lesson this evening. We've got two more chapters, which Lord willing we will get to before the end of this month and year. I appreciate your attention this evening. I just want you to know the gospel is this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God 
He left heaven and came to earth. He became a man so that he could live a perfect life and to give that life as a blood sacrifice on a Roman cross. He died for you. They buried him in a rich man's tomb and he rose from the dead on the third day. Those facts are your hope of salvation. And through believing in those facts and making the decision to obey the commandments of God that flow from them, confessing your belief, turning from sin and embracing Christ's leadership and lordship over your life in repentance, being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and then rising out of that water to live the rest of your days faithful to Jesus. That is God's plan of salvation. If you haven't obeyed it, tonight is a good time to do it. And this evening, if you are a baptized believer and need the prayers of this church, come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.